This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. <laughs> you see, and Matt, you you seem to be copying my new my new thing, which is I'm gonna call it the pregnant pause after yeah. I introduce the show. I, I think and, we should uh I think we should do that moving forward. Yeah, for sure. But hey, speaking of pregnancies, we've got uh new dad, Braden, or sorry, Brady D. Well, wait, should we call him Brady? Is Brady D seems like such a youthful name. Yeah. Maybe it's it's Mr. Pa- Papa D. Papa D. Yeah. <laughs> Papa D. So much more mature. Yeah. Uh, Papa D. Um, so, anyways, we're we're really excited today. We've got Michael Geller on the program. Yeah, fantastic guest. To me, this is one of the most riveting interviews we've had in a very long time. Uh, just in in a kind of overall conversation about what's going right, what's going wrong with the city. Uh, a lot of questions about affordability. A lot of just interesting insights on on the market in general and uh it's fascinating yeah, conversation i mean he, he's the one thing about michael geller is he has been a student of vancouver and vancouver housing for what i mean he's he's been watching this since sounds like late 70s early 80s for sure and through a variety of different lenses i mean he's he's an architect he's got his own company he was in the development world. He's an adjunct professor at SFU Center for Sustainable Development. Yeah. I mean, he, he wears a lot of hats, this he, guy. He wears a lot of hats, so it was great having him on. I mean, this was, I can't believe that he hasn't been on our program yet, but we're so happy that he took the time. For sure. So Matt, hey, this is a long interview. Why don't we uh, just jump right into it? Without further ado, here's our interview with Michael Geller. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Okay, so we're here with Michael Geller, um, a man that uh, wears a lot of hats. Michael, can you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I started off as an architect in Toronto. I then joined CMHC, uh, where I was involved in uh, Ottawa, Vancouver, and Toronto, overseeing uh, the social housing programs. And also in Vancouver, the first phase redevelopment of South Shore Falls Creek. In 81, I joined a private development company, NARAD, which no longer is on the scene, and then set myself up as a private real estate and development consultant. I did that until 99 when I joined Simon Fraser University to oversee the development of Universe City, the new community on Burnaby Mountain. Took a year off and went around the world, and then since then have dabbled in a variety of things. I had a failed attempt at Vancouver City Council. Thank God I lost. <laughs> I subsequently uh, undertook a few small developments, uh, more innovative infill developments. And I've also been writing a column for uh, Vancouver Courier. And uh, more recently, also teach uh, occasionally up at Simon Fraser University as an adjunct professor in the Center for Sustainable Development. Wow. Okay. So you're, you're a busy guy and we appreciate your time, Michael, that's for sure. Uh, so uh, we've been wanting to have you on the program for a while. One of the reasons we got in touch was you recently wrote a piece called New Rules Could Turn Vancouver Homeowners into Criminals in the Vancouver Courier. That was just a few days back. Can you outline uh, your arguments there and, and your fears? I should probably apologize for the somewhat provocative headline, but at least it grabs attention. What started this was the uh, city's empty home tax, which uh, a lot of people consider uh, well-intentioned. It's troubling, I think, to everyone listening right now to see so many people struggling to find affordable housing, while at the same time there's lots of empty houses and apartments around the city. It just seems wrong. That being said, I was particularly troubled by an aspect of the program that effectively tax people who keep second homes in Vancouver. Now, again, many people would say, why is he worrying about people who can afford two homes? What about me? But the fact is people who had second homes often make a significant contribution to the city. They don't use many services. They uh, pay full property taxes. And I do subscribe to the notion that to a certain degree, a man's home or a woman's home is his or her castle. So I took on the whole question of why the city was trying to tax these houses when the real intent of that program was to free up rental housing. And these people were not going to rent their homes for the month or so or two weeks when they're not in Vancouver. And in speaking to a lot of people, what I learned is they intend to enter into creative leases and in many instances, fraudulent leases just to get around this tax, when the reality is these are otherwise law-abiding people, but that's what they're going to do because they feel it's so unfair. More recently, the federal government has also imposed a new regulation that requires everybody, when they sell a house, whether it's an investment property or their personal principal residence, to note it on their subsequent year income tax return. Now, this is a significant thing because up until now, people would often sell their house, would never dream of uh, having to report that on income tax. 
But this is, was to be done because so many people, real estate speculators, have been flipping property and avoiding taxes by fraudulently saying, oh, this was my principal residence, when indeed it wasn't. So you say, well, there's nothing wrong with that, and I agree. But what is interesting is that anybody who's built a laneway house and it is sold as part of a property is going to suddenly discover that they too are subject to a whole series of taxes in the form of capital gains taxes that they never even thought about. In fact, people who built laneway houses, and if anyone's listening now, pay attention. Did you self-assess GST payment when you built that house? And most people are going to say, of course not. I didn't know I had to. And in fact, they have to not only self-assess, which means pay the GST on the cost of building that house, but on an apportioned land value associated with this laneway house, which if you say is a quarter of a lot value somewhere in Metro Vancouver, and I'm making up a quarter, CCA is going to tell me how much they are going to try and assess the value at. All of a sudden, we're talking about, in some instances, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, that would probably be five, six hundred k if you're if you're talking about the quarter of the land value and and building the the laneway, right? That's right. And so you then pay a capital gains tax on half that value. Now, my point is, in many instances, people are going to say, "Well, I didn't know about paying this tax." And I didn't even know I was supposed to uh, indicate that I had this laneway house. So criminal is not necessarily the right word for those who've done it inadvertently. But I suspect a lot more people are deliberately going to hide this fact. Indeed, in talking to many people who have laneway houses, after a couple of drinks, they admit they don't even declare the income they get from these houses. (laughs) And indeed, there's a lot of people living, listening to us right now who have basement suites in their houses. Right. And they're saying, oh, it's not that much. No, I don't declare that as income. I need that money to pay for my mortgage. What I'm about to discover from CRA or the Canada Revenue Agency is how they treat basement suites because in some instances where a basement suite has been modified to meet the city's building code requirements, say you increased the height or you've added sprinklers and other uh, fire uh, exits and so forth, those basement suites may also be subject to the same tax as the laneway house. And so that's why I wrote a column to say, hey, folks, if you've got a basement suite that you've substantially altered, or if you built a laneway house, you better read up on all these tax requirements because if you're not careful, you could find yourself in serious trouble. Question for you, Michael. This seems specific to Vancouver, right? Uh, like basement suites are largely in, in Metro Vancouver. Like this isn't an issue for people living in, say, Winnipeg or Saskatoon or, or other areas. Laneway homes also are a Metro Vancouver phenomenon. Is CRA... Are they thinking about Vancouver when they're applying these new rules? They're thinking about Vancouver and Toronto when it came to putting in the requirement that people declare the sale of a principal residence because that's where the real estate flipping was occurring. 
But the laneway house provisions and the basement suite provisions apply across the country. But it will largely affect those two markets, correct? I mean, it's not going to be... That's right. Certainly laneway housing uh, is happening in Metro. It's happening to a lesser degree in other places. Toronto, though, is looking at bringing uh, zoning changes to allow laneway homes. It seems to me like this is going to have, I mean, apart from potentially leading to people be on the wrong side of the law when it comes to their taxes, um, is this going to incentivize people to actually uh, build laneway homes, uh, bring on renters? I mean, we do have an affordable housing crisis or issue in Vancouver here. It couldn't come at a worse time. Well, that's right. And indeed, I think the opposite will happen. I think... Uh, that a lot of people who might otherwise have been thinking about building a laneway house, when they suddenly realize they may have to pay quite a bit of GST up front, unless it's for a family member. And I should clarify, the treatment of laneway houses for family members is quite different. But I think it's going to deter some people. Indeed, I I posted this on uh, Facebook, and a number of people said, geez, you know, I I was thinking of uh, building a laneway house. This uh, I'm glad I didn't, or this this is uh, something I wasn't aware of. So I then went through the city of Vancouver's literature, and they have an excellent publication online about building a laneway house. And they do address property taxes, and correctly note, if you uh, build a $400,000 laneway house, that's going to impact your uh, property value and your property taxes. But there's no reference whatsoever to you need to also consider uh, federal uh, tax considerations. And uh, there, I mean, there are in some instances some tax rebate programs you can qualify for. But to my understanding, and I'm now getting into conversations with a lot of other people having written this uh, column, overall, it's, it's going to be an upfront expense in terms of uh, GST. And you're going to lose a portion of your principal residence deduction when you sell your house, which is the other key thing. Most people have never even thought of that. I'm sure that virtually everybody who has sold a house recently with a laneway house on it never thought about the fact that that portion of the property attributable to the laneway house is not tax-free, that you have to pay capital gains tax on that. And right now there's someone listening to us saying, oh my God, I didn't know that. I better speak to my accountant. And and with just to follow up with the last question on this point, the unauthorized basement suites that everyone has in the city, you know, wink, wink. Uh, yes. Is how how do those play out in terms of primary residence? If somebody, the first thing is, have you actually been reporting the income? And uh, a lot of people haven't, but some people have been reporting the income, but then they seek um, a capital appreciation deduction. If you've been doing that, and if you made any kind of structural repairs or improvements to that basement suite, then it too starts to be treated differently in terms of determining what is the tax-free gain on the sale of a house. And I should clarify, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm not a tax accountant, although I'm beginning to right. feel like one. Yeah, I was going to say, it's going to sound like <laughs> one. An, but I, I discovered that... Uh, I probably know a bit more about this than most accountants because this whole question of, you know, how do you determine the value of the land associated with a laneway house is more of a real estate appraisal consideration 
than a traditional tax accounting consideration. And indeed, I don't think uh, the federal government fully understands how to go about this, because in Vancouver at the moment, most, I say most laneway or coach houses have to be rental. Although in some instances, in heritage areas and in certain zones, you can build a coach house for sale. And then that is a very different animal. That is like a separate you know, dwelling unit, um, which can be bought and sold and with different tax considerations. So, Michael, in, in talking about, obviously, we've been talking about the, the federal level. It, it seems like all governments currently in the municipal government and the provincial government are trying to address the affordable housing crisis. Are they going about it the right way, in your opinion? I would have to say no. And, I mean, that's a very simplistic answer. Many people would say, oh, why would he say that? Well, let me tell you. The reason I say no is I think too much emphasis has been placed on using taxation policies to either reduce demand, you know, in the case of the foreign buyer's tax, or to free up the rental housing in the case of the empty home tax. When in fact, what to my mind, the more important things to be doing are to speed up all of the zoning and uh, development permit applications at city halls around Metro, many of which are actually for rental housing or including rental housing, to start speeding up these projects. Right now, virtually everything is backlogged. I mean, even if you want to build a laneway house, I'm told it's eight to nine months to go through the approval process. I mean, that's absolutely nuts. When I was mentioning this to my wife, she said, why couldn't people just develop standard plans, which could be approved in two weeks? I said, they have standard plans. Yeah. And yet when I speak to the builders of laneway houses, they tell me the plan checkers te- treat each application if it's a new one. So significantly simplifying and accelerating the approval process could bring on literally tens of thousands of units that are held up right now. To my mind, that's the first thing we should do. There are some other things we can do. Right now, in many parts of Metro, land zone for single-family housing could really be well used for different forms of multifamily. Townhouses, stacked townhouses, low rises, small apartments, and so forth. But the zoning restricts this. And again, if you do decide to rezone, then you go through this lengthy approval process. You also have to go through an expensive approval process because one of the reasons municipalities want you to seek a rezoning is then they can start charging community amenity contribution payments. And that's legitimate. If we're going to increase uh, housing density, we need to increase amenities. But sadly, the people who pay these costs are not the developers. They're the people who buy these new homes and uh, to some degree, everybody else. So that's another thing. I do, though, happen to agree with uh, some of the proposed legislative changes relating to Airbnb. This is a small thing, but to my mind, the Airbnb program, due to its popularity, is probably sucking up more rental housing stock than the second homes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to start to see, I think, new regulations there. But again, 
Most people have been treating that as a revenue generating program, and they're not reporting the tax or the revenue money that they've been achieving. So again, in a minor way, people who operate these Airbnbs are are engaging in criminal behavior by not paying the taxes. But by some of these new regulations, ironically, I suspect more people will behave in an illegal fashion, especially those who bought five condos and have each one rented out right now at $129 a night and not declaring any of that income. So, Michael, you, you touched on supply and rezoning a little bit. And a lot of people have argued that it's, it is a supply issue that we're dealing with here when it comes to affordability. Can we build our way out of this problem, in your opinion? No, not at all. It's not just supply. Supply works for people in the middle income and the upper income categories. But given the cost of land and the cost of construction, you cannot create new housing right now that's affordable to those who are earning a minimum wage. And so you will need to combine that supply with various government subsidies. And these might take the form of subsidies to build social housing, non-market housing, and so forth, or what we call rent supplements, shelter allowances, subsidies to individuals who are truly deserving and uh, unable to afford uh, market rents. So you need a combination. But my point is, right now we're relying too much on taxation programs, Mm -hmm. Developers often say uh, we should rely on supply, and I'm saying even that, those two things are not the answer. It's a combination of things, including uh, subsidy dollars. It's sort of changing, and we've touched on the vacant homes, but changing gears a little bit here. You focused on this empty homes tax quite a bit in, in your articles. <laughs> are, are vacant homes a Vancouver-specific problem, or is this kind of more of a global issue? Where, where do we fit? Uh, last month, I stayed in an Airbnb, <laughs> <laughs> and probably an illegal Airbnb, in Knightsbridge, England, across the road from one Hyde Park, which is one of the most expensive condominium buildings in the world. Uh, one of the apartments directly across from our place, sold for 140 million pounds. And when the nighttime came, my wife said, doesn't look like there's many people living in that building tonight. And she's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. No, I think the phenomenon of people using uh, buildings, condominium developments and houses as safety deposit boxes is a global phenomenon. But there's no doubt that a lot of this has been triggered by the desire to get a lot of money out of uh, Asian countries. But uh, if you go to Sydney, Australia, if you go to Auckland, New Zealand, go to Hong Kong, uh, even Hong Kong, uh, as distinct to mainland China, you see similar phenomena taking place. So, Michael, I, I really like your idea of creating a distinction between vacant homes and a secondary residence for people that maybe spend six months of the year or so in Vancouver. What might that distinction actually look like, though? Well, again, a lot of this is being done on self-declaration. So you're now going to have to make a statement when your new uh, tax bill comes next year as to was your home occupied for a minimum of 
or was it a principal residence? And if it was not a principal residence, um, was it rented out for a period of six months or less? You know, to tell you the truth, there's a lot of confusion as to even if you have a second home that uh, you're occupying, you know, for six months a year, whether or not that is tax-free. And what I'm told is, no, it isn't. It has to be rented for a minimum of six months in a minimum 30-day period. So what, what I would do is just to, to try and make at least the program have a better chance and, and have more people comply. If somebody can demonstrate, you know, and sign a declaration that they lived in it, maybe it's three, the equivalent mm-hmm. of, a, you know, 100 days a year or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you sign that it's fully furnished and you've used it for, you could just have a different form of declaration that covers off a lot of these second homes. And again, people say to me, why are you so obsessed with it? And I am obsessed. It's because uh, I've got a, a computer here full of emails from people, you know, either who have a home in Tawasson or live on Bowen Island and a doctor who comes in here, you know, every week for a couple of days to uh, sometimes volunteer medical services. You know, he's had this place for years and years. It's now worth over a million dollars. He he really can't afford that extra $10,000 or if he can't afford it. He doesn't feel it's fair. Mm-hmm. So he may sell that home, but he's not going to rent it out. But I think the city could have made the distinction. I predict they eventually will because it is so blatantly unfair. I mean, I, I even had the mayor of another BC community write to me to say, you know, my wife had an apartment from when she worked in Vancouver. We got married. She's kept the apartment. We use it uh, every month. We come into Vancouver. Our kids come in or our friends come in or we come in to see our relatives. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't seem fair. And I said, you're right. And, you know, I asked city councillors, why did you do this? And to be honest, I don't think they fully understood it. But then they said, well, staff have told us this is the right thing. So I then spoke to the staff and I said, well, why did you do this? And they said, our consultant told us that any policy that requires people to count the number of days they live in a residence won't work. So I've now asked them for this consultant report. But, you know, it really is quite absurd in a way that that so little research was done. And I've done some research on vacant home taxes and indeed, I think vacant home is a misnomer. They're vacant dwellings, in theory. They haven't generally worked because so many people abuse them, and the administrative costs are often greater than the revenues that are derived. And I, I'm willing to bet publicly on your podcast right now that within the next year, the city of Vancouver will not find anyone $10,000 a day for keeping a home empty. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Yeah. Uh, but... and, and none of us are going to take that bet. <laughs> but, you know, to, to be in a slightly more positive vein, let me share with you, if I can, a couple more ideas that I think could help increase the supply of affordable housing in Vancouver. The first sure. thing is, let's take all of our minimum parking requirements. And indeed, throughout Metro, every municipality has minimum parking requirements. Why don't we convert them into the maximum parking requirements? In other words... Rather than encourage people to build more parking, let's encourage them to build less because many of the people who can't afford housing either can't afford or don't even want a car. They may use car share and so forth. And yet right now, about 18% of the rent 
is attributable to a parking space, whether people need it or not. We should also allow smaller places. You know, I don't necessarily want to live in 260 square feet for the, my entire life, but all, many of us have lived in 260 square feet or less for a period of our lives. And yet most municipalities will not allow smaller micro-suites to be built, either for rent or ownership. That too should change. The other thing is, there's lots of housing forms that are popular around the world that we don't have here. For instance, a lot of my friends happy to sell their house, downsize into a townhouse, but they don't want to be part of a condominium. Well, throughout the world, townhouses are not condominiums. They're usually individually owned on the main street or on any street. We should make it easier for people to build fee simple or individually owned townhouses. That's something that a lot of people would like. Because if I could put it another way, why should somebody who can just barely afford to buy a townhouse be paying somebody else to cut their grass? <laughs> yeah, very true. Those are all really fascinating ideas and excellent ideas. Um, we, we deal with a lot of first-time home buyers in our industry, and we've kind of been talking about a lot of the um, affordability pains in our market. What would be your advice for first-time home buyers thinking, you know, should I jump in now? Should I wait? Yeah, you've been, you've been watching this market since it sounds like the early 80s. So, I'm not a very rich man because I never took all the advice I offered others. I didn't start buying in the east side of Vancouver when I told other people to buy and so forth. But um, when I was a student, I remember uh, hitchhiking to university and a fellow said to me, whatever you do, buy a house as soon as you can or buy property as soon as you can. I said, don't be silly. In those days, we thought of people who were buying property as sort of conservatives. But I think it is generally good advice because as that man said to me, well, don't worry if you think you're paying too much because over the long term, prices generally go up. And that is true. But what I would say to people thinking about this who can't necessarily afford a home, to think about two different approaches. One is think about buying a home with another person or another couple, forms of home sharing. And indeed, I, I've once worked on a number of projects which were designed for what we call co-minglers. You know, there were two bedroom suites, each with their own master bedroom with a shared living room dining kitchen area. So thinking about buying with another person, I think, is an idea. The other idea that I think people should explore is something called the shared appreciation mortgage or various forms of shared equity. In other words, if you don't have the full down payment, maybe there's someone you know, or often a parent, but not necessarily a parent. It could be an uncle or it could be even an employer who's willing to put up some of the equity on the understanding that when you sell your home, and assuming there is some appreciation in value, they will share in that appreciation. They actually have a name for this. It's called a SAM, or Shared Appreciation Mortgage. And you put a mortgage on the title. But there's various ways, I think, of looking at shared equity mortgages. In the UK and some other countries, this is a very common approach. So sharing in the purchase or sharing in the financing there may be some, some ideas there that could help someone who might otherwise not be able to get into the market to buy their first home. So, Michael, we, we have this, uh, we'll maybe leave it there, but we have this segment called the Five Wire 
that uh, we ask our guests. Can you stick around for that? Just it's five just, sure. five rapid questions. Absolutely. <laughs> They're not usually that rapid, but we'll, we'll try. <laughs> My answers are generally not rapid enough. <laughs> so uh, what is your favorite area in Vancouver? Oh, I think probably uh, for many people, the Mount Pleasant area. Okay. For people who've got money, the sort of Kitts Point area. But I also have to tell you, my least favorite area is the downtown east side. Okay. Favorite bar or restaurant? I like a little French restaurant called uh, Salade des Fruits, which is in the French uh, community center on 7th Avenue, just off of Granville. And uh, most people don't know about it. I used to like it better when you, when they, you had to bring in your own wine and you had to pay cash. But there's a very nice little French restaurant. It's always uh, a lot of fun. Wow, that's a good that's a that's a good one. Yeah, our our tech guy was given the thumbs up here. He's he's a big fan apparently as well. So, given the choice for home ownership, downtown penthouse or west side mansion? Oh, downtown penthouse. But again, I mean these are cute questions, but it all depends on your station in life. <laughs> but I did own a downtown penthouse in uh, Bayshore which I developed and I leased it to the father of a girl who was in my daughter's class at school. And they owned a West Side mansion, but they chose to rent my apartment because there was greater sense of security. And he was a banker from Hong Kong, and for him, security was very important. And I think if in many neighborhoods, security and feeling safe can often trump a lot of other considerations. And the advantage, of though, of a penthouse versus many other apartments is you have an outdoor space. Mm-hmm. Where's the first place you take someone from out of town? Granville Island. Um, I was involved uh, when I worked for CMHC in its initial planning. If they've never been to Vancouver, that's usually where I take them. Second place I often take them is to uh, Steveston. I was involved in the redevelopment of Steveston waterfront back in the early 80s. And I think that's an incredibly exciting place to go, especially on a sunny afternoon. So it sounds like you uh, you used to hitchhike to university and you grew up in a kind of groovier time. Uh, last question, Kitts Beach or Wreck Beach? Oh, Kitts Beach. <laughs> um, in fact, I drove by there uh, the other day and I thought, wow, oh, to be young again. <laughs> <laughs> but then the other side of it is this week I was in Kelowna, you know, and... The interior uh, on the beach and playing golf. So there's there's some advantages to getting older too. But oh, I think Kitts Beach is fantastic, and I love watching it, even if I can't be one of the guys or gals lying in the sand. Right. <laughs> Every time we go to Kelowna, we we say to be older. That's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> um, so, Michael, how can people read more of uh, your writing? Find out more about you. Well, I do write a, uh, a blog. Uh, it's called Michael Geller's Blog, if you Google it. And I try to write, it, it, the, the subname is actually Geller's World Travel, because I like to write about places that I visit and generally try to distill some recommendations or ideas for Vancouver based on, on my travels, whether it's taking parking spaces and converting them into a little outdoor patio area for a restaurant like I saw in Vienna in May or other similar sorts of things. And uh, I am in the process of putting together a new website 
Um, I literally have not touched my website since 2008, which is a bit of an embarrassment. And uh, if people really want to waste their time, follow me on Twitter or Facebook <laughs> because uh, I, I do enjoy engaging and provoking, and, uh, but also just trying to get people to think a little bit about a different approach. I do have uh, every year I give a couple of talks at SFU, and they're all uh, online. Um, but you really need a very stiff drink if you're going to watch me. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic. Perfect. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave it there. Thanks again, Michael, for your time and your thoughts. And uh, it's been, yeah, fascinating conversation. Well, good for you for uh, doing this. And uh, thanks for your interest. Okay. okay. Take care. Bye-bye. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Michael Geller, wearer of multiple hats. I mean, Michael is a professor, a teacher at SFU. He's an architect. He's a president of the Geller Group. He writes a column for the Vancouver Courier. He writes up blog posts and is engaging on Twitter and uh, Facebook. I mean, he, he does it all, and it was a fascinating conversation. And the best part about that was right when we were about to sit down with our interview with him, we said, uh, Michael, you're so busy. I know you got so much on the go. Uh, you know, thank you so much for taking the time. And he said, actually, I was just uh, trimming up some bamboo in my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes you think like, you know, it's, it's competent people find time. This is, this is, I was just going to say, I mean, this is a Davidoff trait as well. You know, the busiest guys around, you know, really smart people because they always seem to have time and it's like, oh, yeah, no, they're doing, you know, they have more time than me and they're doing a thousand things. That would suggest uh, we're not very bright. I was going to say, <laughs> doi. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyways, Matt, well, hey, before we sign off for the day, uh, we've got a couple things we, we just want to chat about. One is, uh, PCS. Yeah. Yeah. So, private client services. Yeah. So a lot of people have signed up. We've had tons of people signing up and giving us fantastic feedback. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get uh, realtor level information, usually listings about 36 to 72 hours before public MLS Yep. and you get sold prices, days on market, it's all integrated with mapping. It's the best research tool out there for real estate in Vancouver and you can get that for free no obligations at our site vancouverrealestatepodcast.com slash pcs so sign up for your own free account today yeah and then matt we also we've been talking about reviews we've got we're up to like i think 116 reviews something like keep that. them coming we're so excited about uh, the feedback and we read them all and we're we're yeah they they just help us grow our podcast so we really appreciate that if you haven't reviewed the podcast and you are a listener please go leave us a review on iTunes uh, or whatever medium you listen medium you listen to this program on. And uh, we hugely appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, and we do have that raffle for the, the last 10. There's uh, four more spots. There's four more spots. The The gift, I can't say what it is, but it's I'm looking at it right now and it's collecting dust. So uh, It is collecting you, dust. And it's something that shouldn't be collecting dust. Yeah. Wait, is it the piano? Did they get Adam's <laughs> piano? Are you making fun of my lack of practicing? <laughs> it's uh, No, it's, it's uh, yeah, there's a lot of things collecting dust in this house, yes. but uh, <laughs> the gift is definitely one of them. And so, it shouldn't be. And Matt, uh, how can people reach you? Yeah, give me a shout, 778-847-2854 or email me at matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com and Adam? Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And Papa D? Braden at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or we should maybe call you Papa Dumb. 
pop, pop, did you say Papa Dum? Papa Dum, yeah. Because uh, it's an Indian dish. You're Papa, you're super bright. It's a contrast. It's uh it's, 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 a, it's, it's, yeah, you're not good. dumb. You're the opposite of dumb. Papa Dum? That, okay, sure. Papa Dum at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. No, but in all seriousness, every week you do give a different email. Email handle. <laughs> so <laughs> why <you> stop now? <laughs> yeah. Papa Dum it is. Okay, have a great week, guys. Take, Take care. care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs>